Like we mentioned last week, we said that there is a gaping hole that Paul's um, theology so far in Romans chapter 1 to chapter 8 leaves for everyone who understands the historical background and context of what he's saying. So he has established that salvation is not by works or even by even by lineage, so it's not limited to the Jews, but salvation is by faith. And he still has very, and he has of course concluded Romans chapter eight by saying that he's convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. And then he's, he's thinking ahead of his reader once again, because his reader is saying, wait a second, and the salvation you're talking about, is it the same salvation that was promised in the Old Testament? Because if it's the same salvation you're speaking of, then that salvation was promised to a certain group of people, which is the Israelites. And right now, Israel is not really following Christ, at least in Paul's time and also in our time. Israel is not, has not embraced this salvation. And if what you're saying is true, it means that Israel is going to perish, or Israelites, as it were, who have not accepted Christ, who have stumbled at Christ, are going to perish. So if if this love of God you're talking about was so immutable, um, and if we can bank on it that God is able to see us through to the end, then what about Israel? Did God's word fail concerning Israel? And this is the burden of Romans chapter 9, verse 11, which we now come to. Um, and I think that Romans chapter 9 to 11 introduces us to to the complexity and tension that, that exists in every life. And, and you know, this Israeli dilemma is just a prototype of that, of that tension, of that complexity. Because when you look at the average person, sometimes you ask yourself, so is this person really going to spend eternity in hell? Um, and you may even ask yourself, why, why are some people saved? Why, why are others not saved? This person looks like a very good person. If this person knew the gospel, the person would have received Christ. And chapters like chapter 9 to chapter 11 are supposed to keep us away from um, any kind of naive optimism about ourselves and what we are capable of apart from the grace of God. Um, because when we consider the reality of Israel's current blindness, we, we have to, it, it basically has to keep us honest and humble and realistic, um, even as we groan with the Holy Spirit for all of Israel to be saved. Because as Paul is going to do now, he's going to list all the privileges that they had. And the fact that they still missed it means that anyone who is a recipient of the mercy of God is supposed to continually lean on that mercy. And that's where we'll begin our journey tonight from Romans chapter 9. Okay. So who would like to partner with us in this effort tonight? To help me read Romans chapter 9. Nancy, do you want to volunteer? <laughs> I'm asking you to volunteer. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, let me get the Okay, yeah. So once again, just the background of this. What we're going to read in Romans chapter 9, chapter 9 and chapter 10 and 11 subsequently introduces us to some kind of tension between the promise of God and the practical working out of that promise, because every promise that the, that the gospel is based on was first directed to Israel. And the reality of Israel is that they have rejected the New Testament gospel, as it were. So it naturally raises the question, or a, couple, a few questions, which Paul addresses in this nine, which is that it's the same God that promised what we have in the Old Testament that is working out what we have in the New because there seems to be a disconnect, right? Since Israel is not, doesn't seem to be included in this work. Um, and also, if you're saying that the, that the gospel is congruent, it's continuous rather, between the Old and New Testament, then what has happened to the faithfulness of God? So from verse one to five, Nancy, of Romans nine. Okay. Romans 9 from verse 1 to 5. Mm -hmm. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing, bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I, have, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenant, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, mm -hmm. of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, so the backdrop here is the relationship between Judaism and the church. I think we've seen that um, across Romans, Paul is always trying to create this, this contrast, this trying to establish this separation between Judaism and Christianity, which was an important separation that he had to do in his ministry in those days. Um, and in the first few chapters of Romans, the first eight chapters, Paul has set the work of God that he's doing through the church as the epicenter of the gospel of God. Remember in Romans chapter one, he called it the gospel of God. And if, if, if this is the gospel of God, if the gospel of God is about his son um, who, who came from the lineage of David according to the flesh, and he has established that salvation in this gospel is by faith and by faith alone, and that um, adoption is by the spirit, it's not by birth as it were. Then it raises the questions that we have mentioned earlier, which is what happens to the heritages of the Jews? Um, so that's the kind of tension that you can already notice in this scripture. And Paul talks about, Paul, Paul, talks, Paul explains his, his, his pathos, his passion, his emotion um, for these people. Something I want us to note here is that he says, I tell you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Spirit. So I just wanted to point out here that remember how we said that before you come into Christ, your conscience is your highest moral standard. It's your smoke detector, as it were. But when you come into Christ, um, that faculty moves into the spirit and the Holy Spirit becomes um, that faculty of conscience, that faculty of morality, of, of judgment in the heart. I'm basically saying that what I'm saying is not just, um, I'm not just trying to pacify the Jews who are going to read my letter. The Holy Spirit is bearing me witness in my conscience that what I'm saying is true, which is that I have great sorrow of heart and continual grief in my heart for these people. For I wish that I myself were caused from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh. So this is very clearly referring to the Jews. And whatever Paul means by accursed here, which is the Greek word anathema, is something serious. So whatever has happened to Israel is not just okay, um, they don't believe in Christ, but they are still God's people and all of that. Whatever has happened to them is akin to an accursing, to an anathema, which is like a cutting off, which is like a separation, which you can even call eternal damnation. That's what has happened to them because he's saying that if it were possible, I wish that I could take their place. And that's how much love and passion I have for them. Um, and he begins to list some of the heritages that these people had in God. To help us understand better this tension, because for us 21st century readers, I know I've tried to give a little bit of historical context, but it may not be exactly clear why this was such a problem, why everything that Paul has talked about in Romans was such a problem as he regards Israel. So um, um, I'd like us to just diverge a bit and read some verses of scripture. De um, Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six, for example, says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now, this is um, a scripture that makes that, that puts it out there that it's God who chose them. And he didn't just choose them for the sake of it. He chose them to be special above you and I, basically, above all the peoples of the earth on the face of the earth. So, Israel has this as a heritage. They have this as a promise. What we call the new covenant, if you realize, what we call the new covenant was first prophesied in the Old Testament. And if you know where the new covenant was prophesied about in the Old Testament, you realize that if you read it in context, it wasn't even talking about you and I. Let's look at it. Jeremiah 31. It says, at the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, 
the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when I went to give him rest. The Lord appeared of all to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Of course, we're not going to read the whole of Jeremiah 31. But if you go to verse 31 down to 33, where it mentions the new covenant, you realize that if you want to read the verse in context, it's actually refer at least the prophets who prophesied understood that their prophecy was primarily applicable to Israel. So that's what Paul means that um, to them belong all these privileges. He, he mentions that they are Israelites, meaning that they descended from Jacob. Um, to them pertain the adoption according to the flesh. To them pertain the glory. We saw the glory of God descending in the temple um, of in the temple of Solomon and in the tabernacle of Moses. To them belongs the covenants. So like we've just read, even what we call the new covenant was primarily given to that nation of Israel. They were God's starting point. To them belongs the giving of the law. And Paul views the law here as a good thing because like we said, the law itself is righteous. It's it's we who are not righteous, and that's what makes the law look bad. But the law by itself is holy, is just, and is good all by itself. Um, to them belong the service of God, that's the priesthood. To them belong the promises. Every promise that you claim in Christ from the Old Testament was, a lot of them was, were directed to the Israelites. And of course, the fathers, that's the patriots, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, descended from Israel. But despite all of this fact, the most compelling reason is that Christ himself, who is Lord overall, who is God himself, God himself descended from Israel. And so if, if God is descended from Israel, how come that Israel is, no long, is not saved currently? How come Israel has rejected the Messiah? And by the time you read what has happened to Israel from verse 1 to chapter 5, it naturally raises the question that we're now going to read about in verse six. But before we read it, um, I just want to clarify something about the choice of God because we have read in Deuteronomy chapter six, um, verse seven, or yeah, Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse six rather, that Israel was actually chosen by God. And it's, it's important to understand that um, the way, the reason why God chose one nation because this is one of the things Paul is going to, to bring out later, that why choose a nation and reject them ultimately? The reason why God chose one nation is that um, that was his plan to actually choose everybody else. So God came to Abraham, for example, and God wanted Abraham to believe. However, inside Abraham's belief was the believing of you and I and everybody else who believe in Christ. And that's how God begins his project. At the beginning of the year, we talked about nations and the nations often begins with one person who can believe the promise of God. And so God's sovereign choice of Israel was not because of anything that, anything that was particularly good about Israel itself, was because God was just looking for an entry point into humanity. And he had to start somewhere. He couldn't start with everyone and every nation. And by sovereignty, he chose Israel. Um, but of course, that doesn't address the question that now faces us from verse 6 to verse 13. So Nancy, can you continue reading? Okay. Verse 6 to 13. Mm -hmm. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham, mm -hmm. but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. For the children not being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to the election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, 
Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Amen. Amen. Very sovereign words, right? So Paul begins to refute, like the claim that might be laid, okay, you're saying that the New Testament gospel that you're preaching is the same as a, is the same God who promised, who gave those promises in the Old Testament that performs the New Testament. But a lot of, a huge part of the Israelis are not, are not, don't appear to be part of this arrangement. And so he raises, he raises the natural question, has the word of God failed? But Paul says here that it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. And then he begins to clarify what, and what he does here basically with these stories, the, his reference to these Old Testament stories is that he references three principles of God's sovereignty or of God's choice in salvation. And, this, and these principles are important to keep in mind as we think about our salvation, the salvation of our children, and the salvation of everybody else that we hope will come to Christ. The first one is that he says, for, not, for, they, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac shall, shall your seed be called. So Paul, um, Paul is stating a very obvious thing here, which is that the fact that someone was a child of Abraham according to the flesh did not automatically include them in the promise of God. So salvation, that's the first principle, is not by birthrights. Salvation is not by ethnicity. You know, if you, if you remember our study in Romans chapter 5, when we compared the sin of Adam um, to the grace that is in Christ. Remember in Romans chapter 5, verse 15 to 16, Paul said that the offense is not like the free gift. And one of the differences we saw between the offense and the free gift is that Adam's sin left us without a choice. It means that you were, you were born in sin, you were conceived in sin, like David mentions in Psalm 51. It was an inheritance that you got from Adam. There was nothing you could do about it. That's why God credited you with sin even before you committed any act of sin, because that's how you were conceived. And we said that the free gift of God does not operate automatically. So somebody does not become saved simply because they are born an Israelite. And I think anyone who has read the Old Testament and seen how, for example, God brought them out of Egypt, all of them, and at the end of the day, only two out of that massive multitude enter the promised land, will realize that the fact that you were born Israeli, the fact that you had the name Israel, does not automatically include you in God's plan for eternal salvation. Because the promise was made to Abraham, but not everyone who was a seed of Abraham was part of that promise. And, and he, he contrasts this with Ishmael. Abraham had another son, Ishmael. Ishmael was was the son of the bondwoman. And Ishmael was not the only son Abraham had. Abraham had sons through his other concubines and wives, like Keturah, for example. But the one who inherited the promise was the child that God gave to him. And this is the second principle of salvation, which is that the salvation that God offers is always based on the promise of God. Because Abraham knew that God had promised him a son, and so he, he decided to try to help God achieve that objective. And anytime we find ourselves operating outside of the promise of God in our own strength, what we end up producing is a kind of Ishmael. He does not have the, the weight to inherit the destiny of the promise of God, whatever it is that we produce from any arrangement that we get. Um, and so it's important that all our prayers, for example, must be based on the promise of God. It's important that every step that we take and we say that this step is in faith must be based on the promise of God. If, if there is a promise of God, then there is a premise upon which God can, upon which God can rest upon that for which we're asking. But if there is no promise of God backing up that which we want to do, there's no amount of self-effort that we can do that will make it happen. Because physically there was no difference between Ishmael and Isaac. The only difference was that Isaac was the one who was promised. And then he now tells us the, the final principle of God's, um, of the final principle of salvation, which I think is the most difficult, which is that God exercises his sovereign will in election. Because you might look at Ishmael and Isaac, right? And say, okay, um, Ishmael was born of a slave girl who they took from Egypt. So that made sense that God rejected him. But when you look at Jacob and Esau, 
What Paul is saying is that before these ones were born, you know, before, before Rebecca gave birth to Jacob and Esau, God had already made his sovereign choice. He said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And, this, and these boys were twins. And in fact, Esau was older than Jacob. So there was nothing that Jacob did to choose God, for example. There was nothing that Esau did to, to reject God. What happened is that because God had predetermined that I love Jacob and I hate Esau, what happened is that God decided to, to, to interfere, if you like, in the life of Jacob. And this is how I want us to understand scriptures like this, because reading that Esau have I hated sounds very intense because it almost means that God really, um, it, it sounds like God detested Esau and was working against him the whole time. But this is not the sense in which God used the word hated. Because for example, Jesus says that if you do not hate your father and your mother, and if you do not hate even yourself, you know, you cannot be my disciple. He's just, he's not saying that, of course, you completely detest your father and your mother or yourself for that matter. But he's saying that you, that you give him a higher measure of love than you invest in any of these other personalities. And that's what's happening here because Esau prospered. God prospered Esau. God blessed him. Remember, Isaac blessed Esau and he prospered. Esau was a prosperous man. And so God's favor was clearly upon his heart. Upon his heart. But as it was pertaining to the promise that was given to Abraham, Jacob was a chosen one. And so even though he had so many weaknesses, Oh my God, so many weaknesses. He was such a deceiver. He, he was the kind of person that because of his, his temperament, he, were, he, he didn't find it easy to trust even God. He was always scheming and looking for a solution. You see, all the metrics, all the indices that are there that are indicating that a man should be disqualified might actually be present in his life or might be present in your life. But what matters is that God chose you. He says, Jacob have loved. And what Jacob have loved simply means that God decided by that love to interfere in the life of Jacob until his life came into the shape that God had predestined for him to come into. And what that means is that if God leaves us to ourselves, all of us are going to become like Esau. Remember that um, David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. So it's possible that God could have left us to ourselves. And if he leaves us to ourselves, the, the result of that is that we just become Esau. What Jacob have loved means that God pursues. He invests, he invests his spirit and his grace to ensure that, okay, even though all of these people have the propensity to go astray without my help, I'm going to invest my help in this particular one. And so these are the three sovereign principles that Paul uses to defend the fact that God's word has not failed over Israel. Instead, what the first principle is that the fact that you were born Jewish doesn't mean that God, God elected you for, for eternal life because the clearest example is that not everyone that was born in Abraham's house got eternal life. Not even everyone that was born in Isaac's house got eternal life, but only those that God sovereignly chose by his own choice, right? Um, and then also salvation is based on the promise of God and everything we do in our dealings with God is based on the promise of God. Now, I can imagine that you have perhaps objections to this kind of thinking, right? Or questions. And I'm really open to hear them because if you have, if you have any kind of objection to this, to this explanation of how history pans out, um, then it means that you're very normal. Or am I, am I wrong about no. that? No, you're not wrong. I just have a, a question. Um, it's more or less like if if God chose who would be saved from I don't know if you have, if you mentioned that earlier, but if He had chosen those who would be saved from the household of Isaac or Abraham, did He also choose those who would be saved in this new covenant? Okay, that's a good question, and and that is a question that Paul is going to address further in Romans chapter nine. But what do you think the answer is from what we have explained so far? Because there's a place in, I think it's, I don't know if it's in this same Romans that, that said that those God had predestined, right? And I know we have, we have touched on that area before, but mm -hmm. I'm not so sure what the conclusion was 
So okay. looking at that now, it seems that still there are some people that have been destined to be saved, and then those are the only people that will be saved. But in my understanding of the new covenant, doesn't suggest that, like, so if if this person was not predestined to be saved eternally, that means person is going to hell no matter how much the person tries to come yeah. to Christ. Uh-huh. So it is a bit conflicting for me because I don't remember the conclusion we came to when we first addressed it. So I would think I'll just like a little bit of more clarity on it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the tension that is happening in chapter nine to chapter eleven. Um and there's no simple answer to that to that dilemma. But one thing I can assure you from what we have seen is that if God did not choose you before time began, you, you will not have been saved. If, if, if God left you to your own wisdom, you will not have been saved. I think we are going to see it as, as Paul tries to explain it. Of course, when you do come into time and when God calls you, this is what we explained last week. When God calls you, that's where, they, that's where you can now choose when he calls you. But whether or not he will call you, <laughs> it's not something that you can decide. It's something that is in the sovereignty of God. That's what he's saying here, that these children were not even born and God said, Jacob have loved. <laughs> but Esau, I have hated. If you really understand what's going on here, of course, it's impossible to understand it 100% because this is God's sovereignty at work, right? If you want to understand the word sovereignty, you might, I might ask you, what are you wearing today? And you tell me, oh, I'm wearing this, this, this. And I ask you, so why did you choose to wear that instead of the other things in your wardrobe? Imagine if the clothes in your wardrobe had mouths and like, why didn't you wear me? You have to understand that that's how the relationship between humanity and God is to a large extent. God, God retains the right to choose. And just in case you came to Christ, it's not because there was something particularly good in you that made you come to Christ. It's because in his sovereignty, he chose you. That's what Romans chapter 8 talks about, that whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And whom he predestined, he called. What we said last week is that foreknowledge is not the same as foreordination and that predesti predestination is not the same as predetermination. So what's happening there is that God knew you. He knew that I want Nancy to be part of my family. And when and because, because we, like we said last week, if God didn't know that, then he wouldn't be God, right? For example, if God didn't know that Adam would sin, then he wouldn't be God. But that doesn't mean that God foreordained Adam to sin. He just knew that it was going to happen. And so God foreknew you, Nancy. And so what he did because he foreknew you was that he then predestined you. Meaning, and we talk about predestination, it's about destination. He, he destined that, that your final end will be that you will be like Christ. That's your destination. And so all of that happened before time began. And then when you came into time, even though you were running from God, <laughs> And perhaps you were in the, in the lowest pit that they exist on earth. Because of that foreknowledge, he found you where you were and he called you. The reason you are in Christ today is because he called you. He called you. Um, and, and, he's, and he called you because he foreknew you. And you can even say he chose you. That's, what, that's how Ephesians puts it before time began. And I must confess to you, it is a tension which Paul will resolve further, furthermore in chapter 9, um, in the rest of chapter 9 and chapter 10, this tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will that he has given to us to choose our part within, this, within the boundaries of that sovereignty. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so it means that we're all normal because this kind of scripture should should um, pose that kind of reaction to all of us. So now Paul tries to dive into a little bit of what Nancy asked earlier from verse 14 to 23. Can you read, Nancy? Okay. What shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom, whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, mm -hmm. nor of him who runs, but of who God, of but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, 
that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, excuse me, why does he still found, find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the king, will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Okay. Yeah, thank you. All right. So what do you think? Do you think Paul has exacerbated the tension or he has just increased it? Anyone? Um, for me, he increased the <laughs> point where he, 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 he got to Pharaoh and said that he was the one that even had in Pharaoh's heart. Okay. But then again, it, he, he brought it down again when he said that the potter, I mean, yeah, the, the, the thing that was made cannot, where is it again? With the thing form, say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? So like, from, from there, it, it went down a little bit, but it's still the confusion is still there, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. And I think Vanessa just wrote in the chat that the same. So I imagine the same for you too, Vivian, for Elizabeth as well. Um, you know, like I said at the beginning, scriptures like this are supposed to, they are designed by God primarily to do something to our hearts. They are supposed to keep us honest and open and humble before God. Like there are many things in scripture that are not very clear deliberately. For example, the way eschatology is going to happen is not very clear. There are different theological positions to it. And none of them is compelling enough because each of them leaves very gaping questions unanswered. And those kind of mysteries, as it were, is supposed to leave us open and honest before God as we understand that, you know, as, as awesome as God is, as loving as he is to include us in the plan of salvation, He's still sovereign and he still knows more than us. And there is still a part of us that must keep depending on him. So what Paul is doing here is that he's trying to answer the charge that comes up against God. That is God therefore unrighteous. Why does he say, I love Jacob and I hate Esau? Does that make God unrighteous? And he says, certainly not. Instead, he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You see, one thing to understand here is that if, if what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam did not happen at all, we will not be having this conversation. And after man rebelled against God, it was inevitable that we we're going to have this dilemma. And basically, God could have let all of humanity sleep. Like I was mentioning, if you look at the city that, that um, Cain built in Genesis chapter 4, when he departed from the presence of God, that city was, was built on the principle of independence, a, a, a principle that does not want God to rule over my affairs. And if we look at our big cities today, we can see the same principle at work, the same spirit at work. Can we be independent of God? And that's basically what the four represented. Partaking in that tree of the knowledge of good and evil meant that we decided that we wanted to handle life apart from God. The natural thing for God to do was to leave all of us to go our own way. And so if you're born in Cain's city, you don't need to do anything good or bad. You're just going to find out that you are far from God. The only way your condition can change in that setup is that God himself will have to intervene by an act of his sovereignty. He will have to intervene to, to bring you into the sphere of his mercy. And that's why Paul says that <laughs> God has certain metrics that he uses to determine who receives that act of mercy. And he has or he has the big dashboard in front of him. He sees all the metrics, he sees everyone. And you and I don't have as much of a big picture as God has. And so that means that our, like the best of our intelligence cannot correctly question God's motive in this issue. So that's the first thing. So he says, I will have mercy on whom 
I will have mercy. But then there's the issue of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh here is an example of what is going to happen to each of us if God does not have mercy on us. Because if you read, even though here in Romans, Paul focuses on the part of Exodus where God says that I'm going to harden Pharaoh. The first thing that happens when, when Moses goes to, goes to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. The Bible records that Pharaoh himself, he hardened his heart. This is what happens to you when God does not intervene in your circumstance. It's that a hardening of heart and sin is one of the things that's responsible for this hardening of heart happens to you. The only way for God to have delivered Pharaoh from this wrath that was inevitable was that God would have had to show him mercy and opened his eyes to see from a different vista and to judge from a different perspective. But God refused to do that and nobody can question God for not doing that. <clears throat> and who is to say that Pharaoh left to himself would have come to God because Pharaoh was the head of, of, of the world power of that day. And his reality, like Ezekiel tells us, was, was rooted in powerful witchcraft in the Red Sea. The man had his own God. The man had his own source of um, power and he had his own view of the universe. He did not exactly need the sovereignty of God in his life. The only way his condition would have changed is that God would have visited him with mercy. And God decided not to show Pharaoh mercy, but, to instead, but instead to harden his heart. And that's what basically he's saying here. That what happened with Pharaoh was just a sovereign, was just a, a matter of God's choice. God refused to show him mercy and instead hardened his heart. You see, I've, I've had conversations with, with um, people here in Germany that identify as homosexual or, or, or whatever. You know, you know all the conversation about gender identity and sexual fluidity and all of that. Um, one thing you, you, you realize about these people is that they are very passionate about who they think they are or who they are. Let's just say that. They're very passionate about it. Some of them are very nice and lovely and good people. Some of them are very convinced that this is the right path for them. It's, it's not as if like the person who is living in sin is going around crying that, oh, my life is miserable. Like the person actually believes that this is the height of it. And it, it, it's something that should make us take a step back and think that before we make the conclusion that we are better than these people, it's important sometimes to take a step back and ask yourself what you would have been without the mercy of God. What would I have been without the mercy of God? I don't, like in my own case, when I took thought of that, I cannot tell you confidently that I think I would have been better than any sinner that is out there. But it is the intervention of the mercy of God that unlocks our potential. Because left to ourselves, our own thinking, our own wisdom will lead us to futility. That's what the preacher found out in Ecclesiastes. But it's the mercy of God that intervenes and enables us to see things differently. And it's because we can see things differently that we can come into different seasons in God and accept different, a different way of life. Um, and what this makes us is what our theme of study is all about today. It makes us what Paul calls vessels of mercy. You know, if you, if you realize that your salvation was an act of mercy, it's not because you were some kind of good person that chose God. It's because he first of all chose you and he called you. And if not that, he intervened by his mercy, you will not even have been saved. It makes you a vessel of mercy. And what that means is that it makes you someone who is dependent on God. Um, and, and we're not supposed to lose sight of this fact, um, especially when we consider what we can be without the mercy of God. Because the hardening that God does, it's an action that, that renders someone insensitive to God, obnoxious to God, obnoxious to evil and to his word. And if that hardening is not reversed, it's going to lead to wrath, to, the, to, to eternal damnation. And Paul calls, calls them vessels of the wrath of God. And in fact, God begins to use them to display his power. Um, and I think... It's important for me to say at this point that this is necessary when we, when we think of evangelism and outreach and how we should reach people. Our approach should primarily, should primarily be one of prayer and listening to the heart of God, right? Because if we have the mindset that, oh, I can go to the street and talk to anybody 
And if my argument is convincing enough, the person is going to come to Christ. Then you're going to be introduced to a, to a very rude awakening when you go out for those who have been going out because you are going to make the best presentation possible. In fact, the Holy Ghost may even flow and you give a word of prophecy and you lay your hands on the sick and the sick recover. And yet the person you're preaching to still finds a reason why they cannot make a decision for Jesus. And so the first thing to do is to faithfully labor in prayer and to listen to the heart of God. If you, if you go into the park to evangelize, you listen to the heart of God. Should I talk to this person or that person? Because it, it's not everyone that's a vessel of mercy. And there is a way, we'll find out later how you can know very quickly who's a vessel of mercy or not, but it's not everyone that is. And it is only on the basis of God's mercy that anyone can be saved. So that's the argument that, that Paul makes and that you cannot question God about this issue. I think like one of the persons that decided that he really wanted to question God about this issue was Job, because in Job's estimation, he was a very good person. And if we read the story as the audience, we kind of agree with Job because we know the story that he didn't do anything wrong to deserve what was happening to him. Yet God in his sovereignty, by his sovereign choice, decided to introduce him into a season of trial. And so he was convinced that if he comes before God and brings his argument, that God will not have any defense that will be convincing. And then from, this, from chapter 38, God finally showed up and said, okay, before we have this conversation, let me just ask you some questions. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And he began to tell him about creation and the amount of detail that went into creation. He told him about some very wild beasts that need to be pacified. And he said, do you have the power to make this beast to bow to you? And he realized that it takes so much intellectual, <laughs> emotional, and muscular, if you like, muscular capacity to be God. And the variables God contends with when he makes a choice is past finding out. That's what Paul concludes in Romans 11. His ways are past finding out. And when Job finished, when God finished the introduction to the discussion, Job said, don't worry, I'm, I'm not sure I have the capacity to sustain the discussion. I've heard about you before, but now I've seen you. And even though I can't remember anything I did wrong, I repent. I, I realize that, that, that I'm so infinitesimal that if I'm here today, it's because of your mercy. And I know that all these things I'm saying doesn't, it makes us sound very, very insignificant. You know, we are, we are something. We are, we, like, it shouldn't make us sound small. Like my, one of my mentors always say, I'm not trying to make you look small. <laughs> you are actually small. That's, that's the reality of the big picture. In, in the, as it relates to God, he's the one who created. Um, and what we should always focus on is not so much, you know, why does God harden some people in terms of why doesn't he give them mercy? But it's more a question of why did he show me mercy? Why did he show me mercy? Because I could very easily have been like one of the lost people. So that's basically the point that Paul is making from verse 14 to 23. Do you have any questions to this? Any follow-up? <laughs> I'm not going to ask you if it was clearer to you because I don't think it's ever going to be 100. It's, it's a tension that Paul is resolving. Remember, he's trying to explain why even though God initially chose Israel and, and all the promises sounded like it was extended to the entire nation, ultimately there were just a few people in that nation that were saved. And those people the fact that those people were saved was not even because they were good. It was just an act of the mercy of God. Okay, any questions here or contributions to this? Yes, I, I, I think, um, I don't think I'm correct, but as much as also God has a final say, I, I feel like there's always a part where God also gives a human being the choice to do something. Um, for example, in, in the case of Abraham, he had to choose if he wants to go or not, right? He, he has to have a certain input into the, into the calling. And the Bible clearly tells us that he chose to, to obey God. He chose to, to, to obey God. And in faith, and 
Yes, and, and I think we also read the journey where he stumbles a lot along the way. Um, but eventually he makes uh, the right choice and God, how he helps him make that choice. And also the Israelites, God wants them a lot. He, he now and then comes in and assists their decision-making and over and over, eventually, yes, eventually the person who ends up falling out of God's grace or God's mercy had often one or two chances of um, of of knowing what 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 God's grace is. It's not just as if he just like flatantly blatantly just does not show him that grace or that mercy that he has. Thank you, Vanessa, for your points. Um, and yeah, I think it's important to see that the way Paul writes his letters is that he focuses on one idea at a time. So by the time we go into chapter 10, you would see that at the end of the day, nobody is still without an excuse, right? Because the knowledge of God is spread across and everyone, everyone by themselves has enough information to come to God, right? But what Paul is trying to emphasize here is that if God leaves it to us, none of us will come. And I think anytime we read the Old Testament, it's important for us to read it with the, with the right lenses because Jesus asked the lawyer that came to ask him a question. He, well, the lawyer asked him, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, and Jesus said, what does the law say? And he asked him, how do you read it? If you, if you read the Old Testament and you read God's dealings with those men, the only conclusion you can come out with is that God was really merciful to them because God came to Abraham and gave him an instruction and what we saw was how he violated that instruction. Of course, he obeyed part of it, but there were many violations, right, of that instruction. For example, he went to Egypt twice. He lied about his, his wife and almost got her involved with a particular king. And if not that God intervened in his mercy, you know, at the point when, at the point when um, um, Abimelech was about to sleep with, with, with Sarah, if that had happened, it would have invalidated forever the promise of God. It was an act of the sovereignty of God that he appeared in Abimelech's dream. Abraham had no, Abraham had no hand in that appearance. He wasn't even praying. We we're not even told that he was seeking God's face. As far as he was concerned, this arrangement was going to save his life. When we read the Old Testament, one of the things that is glaring to us is that even though the law is given in the Old Testament, nobody could have been saved by it not even Abraham himself. And that's what Paul has painstakingly tried to establish, that Abraham's path was a path of faith. God said, leave your father's house, and he took Lot, but God still blessed him. God still spoke to him. And when Lot finally left him, God made it clear that this guy was a problem in your life by the kind of promise that God gave to him. Um, yeah, but of course, you're, like you're right in that there is always a presentation. There's always an opportunity for each person to choose. But all of us must realize that if God does not intervene in our lives, by our own thinking and our own wisdom, we will not choose God. And even if we choose God, we will not choose Christ because that's what we're coming to see. Because I'm sure, Vanessa, you've gone out to preach and people like the idea of God. But then <laughs> when you move the conversation into Christ, you realize that, that there's a stumbling block, right? Once the conversation moves in, moves in that direction. Yes, once, once they have to, to, to shift, to give their life to Christ, then yeah. If God is there and he doesn't do anything, I think it's okay. But when God has to intervene, then it's a problem. <laughs> yeah. And so Paul now begins to address us whom you can call the vessels of mercy. So Nancy, can you read from verse 24 to 29? Yeah. Um, verse 24, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work 
and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short walk upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath has left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Mm. Amen. Amen. Do, you, do you see the name that Paul ascribes to God here? He calls him the, the Lord of Sabaoth. This is, the, this is the God of contention, the God that comes to judge. Do you remember when, when, when the Lord of Sabaoth visited Moses and was about to kill him because he did not circumcise his son? Even Moses would not have, would not have survived when God showed up in this his regalia of the Lord of Sabaoth. And he says, except if that same Lord had shown us mercy and left us a remnant, even Israel that received the promise. Because like we said, when we did Romans chapter three, that, that, the, that circumcision, because circumcision is one of Israel's claim that they are eternally gods. Circumcision was only a way of getting into the old covenant. It was not a way of staying in the covenant. The law was a way of staying in the old covenant. That's why God found a fault with it because nobody could stay in it. So even though they entered into covenant with God by circumcision, nobody kept the law. And so God was free to break free also from that covenant and establish a new thing because nobody um, was able to live up to the demands of that covenant. And basically, Paul talks about us here as vessels of mercy. Vessels of mercy. Um, Nancy, can you just read verse 30 to 33 so that we can just summarize the thoughts together as we close? Okay. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Thank you. So in these closing sections of chapter 9, Paul returns to his initial discussion about Israel because actually his real target audience is not really us, right? But it's the, it's the Israelites, like the Jew who is listening to him. And he's saying that, God called out a certain people for himself. Um, I think that's where verse 24 starts from. So he called some people from the, from the Jews, but not only from the Jews. He also called some from the Gentiles. And what Paul is doing is that, and what he's going to continue doing in chapter 10, is that he's going to, he's trying to show that every promise that you read about Israel in the Old Testament was about a called out people. God was speaking at a spiritual Israel, if you like. I don't necessarily like that phrasing particularly, but it's, it's accurate to describe what was happening in the Old Testament. God was speaking to a spiritual Israel. And that, that spiritual Israel was made up of both Jews and non-Jews, and that they were called out. And he, he gives us the Old Testament references that shows that they were called out and also verifies that God never intended that the fact that you were born Israeli or were born Jewish automatically meant that you were saved. Only a remnant was going to be saved by the mercy of God. Um, and just like my closing questions to us is, considering that God works by this principle of mercy, right? What are the factors? You know, again, God says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. But when we investigate the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, we saw that there were some variables that if you knew how to tune those variables, you could find yourself receiving mercy from God. Of course, I'm not trying to say that you could force God to show mercy because it's a matter of sovereignty. But there were certainly very pristine and very distinct cases where people who are vessels of mercy, and it's probably necessary to make this distinction. It's not as if, if you're an unbeliever, there are certain things you can do to make God show you mercy. God decides how to do that, but if God has decided already and has called you into this family and has made you a vessel of mercy, you see, we, we, we talked last week about the already not yet state. It's, it's, an, it's a reality that you're a vessel of mercy 
For God expects that that mercy will, will be multiplied in every aspect of your life, right? Because even though you are saved, you are going to come to a place where there are certain aspects of your life that are not exactly displaying the dividends of the grace that is in Christ. It means that in those places, you need mercy. So Paul says in Hebrews 4 verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy. It's when we find mercy that grace is released. And I want to just, I want us to close by, by looking at some of the variables that we find in scripture that when you subscribe as a vessel of mercy, when you subscribe to these variables, more mercy can be poured out to you. Because if, if, if you look at King Saul, for example, what was the difference between King Saul and, and David? Theologically speaking, because Paul, Saul made one mistake and God rejected him, right? But David made quite a few, several. And God said, you, my covenant with you is forever. Theologically speaking, you could say that, um, okay, in Isaiah, in Genesis chapter 49, when, when Jacob blessed his children and he prophesied, he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, right? So the kingship by prophecy was supposed to be from the tribe of Judah. And that's why God prepared David for the kingship. It's just that the Israelis began to beckon for a king before David was ready. And so God gave them Saul in the interim. So you can say that Saul was not, <laughs> was not a product of the mercy of God. He was a product of the choice of the people. So naturally, when he made his mistake, God did not have any, any reason to, to intervene with mercy. So you can actually say that. And you'll be very correct if you say that. But because David was of the, of the tribe of Judah, he was ordained, prepared by God for that office. God was naturally invested in showing him mercy despite all his mistakes. But then, even within David's line, you know, within the line of Judah, after David, literally all the other kings from that same line of David were a mess. So what differentiated these ones? What are the variables of mercy? Seeing that God has made us variables of mercy, how can we continue in this mercy? Because like we see, like we see in about the Israelis, even though they had these great promises, at the end of the day, not all of them came into the reality of it. So what are the factors that keep the mercy of God flowing in a particular life? What are the factors? Can you think of any from scripture? Grace. Grace, okay. But I'm, um, I'm, I'm speaking of things that are within your jurisdiction, things that are within your, your own premonition, as it were. Well, the description that says we should approach the throne of um, grace with boldness that we might obtain mercy. That's, that's the correct one, right? Mm -hmm. Hebrews 4.16. Uh-huh. Okay, that means that it looks like boldness. I don't know. It's, it's one of those things which for me is a function of faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's all I got. I think I think that's correct for sure. Um, you know, if you remember the story of Samson, right? He made so many mistakes, right? And anytime we think about the story of Samson, we always think about it as a failure. But that's not exactly how the Bible summarizes Samson's life because Samson made it to the Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. And many other great characters of the Old Testament that didn't have half, half as bad a character as Samson didn't even make it there. Samson messed up, married the wrong wife, um, got involved in the wrong things. But, but the man still remembered how to call upon the Lord. He still remembered how to reach out in faith. He still remembered that he was a vessel of mercy. He still remembered that he was not chosen because he did something good. Long before he was born, prophecy came over his life that this was his destiny. He recalled that he was a vessel of mercy. And he cried out and said, God, let my hair grow back. His, his faith was bold in the midst of his mistakes. He knew that I didn't come into this life of faith because of my own goodness. I came in because of your sovereignty. And I cried to that sovereignty. And Samson's name made it. <laughs> to the hall of fame in hebrews chapter 11 from from the study down it says what shall i must say for time will fail me to talk about 
Samson. Samson was mentioned in the same breath as David and Samuel. And what distinguished him was that he knew that it was not by works. And he said, Paul is saying here that the reason the Israelites, even though they had a zeal for righteousness, the reason they were rejected is because they didn't seek it by faith. They sought it by works. That's the first thing that ensures that we continually remain in the focus of the mercy of God, that our faith knows how to reach out to God, even in the midst of our weakness and in our mistakes. Of course, we have, we have dealt with weaknesses and mistakes. This is not to say that we're supposed to perpetually remain weak. But if, if God has chosen you, then he has finished the business, actually, as far as he's concerned. Your faith has to hold on to that sovereign election in the face of opposition, in the face of the enemy, and say, God chose me. And it's too late for Satan to do anything about it. There's something that the Bible mentions in Isaiah chapter 66 from verse 1 to 2. God begins to say that the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. He says, where is the house that you have built for me? Let's just go there. Isaiah chapter 66, um, verse 1 and 2. He says, where is the house that you built for me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, meaning the heaven and the earth. And all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look on. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Friends, if you, if you understand that this is one of the variables of mercy, the mercy of God will never be lacking in your life. He who is poor and of a contrite spirit. David said after he sinned with Bathsheba, this was what differentiated him from, from Saul and what differentiated him from all the kings after him. He went back to God and said, against you, and you only have I sinned. He said sacrifices and burnt offerings. You don't, you don't want those things. You know, Saul thought it was about the sacrifices. He says, but, 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 but a broken and a contrite spirit, you cannot refuse it. That's a very bold statement. He says you cannot refuse it. A heart that is honest before God, that is truthful before God, that is broken because of sin. Remember Paul's struggle in Romans chapter 7. It was a very honest struggle. He says, the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing them. Instead of, instead of relating with your weakness or with your problems, with a very stoic um, with a very stoic view of the issue and trying to act like you have everything under control, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's, there, is, there is something about a contrite heart, one that lays itself at the feet of Jesus, that he says that God cannot refuse. This principle is littered everywhere in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. It says, For thus says the Lord, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. This is what God desires. Um, and there's also Psalm chapter 34, verse 18. All of these scriptures talk about how God visits the contrite and the humble with mercy. In Psalm 18, verse 25, it says, to the merciful, I will show myself merciful. Because one thing you're going to find out is that God is going to put you in situations where you're going to need to be merciful. And if you remember that you are a vessel of mercy, it will be so easy for you to let go, to forgive, to release mercy to those who need it. Another aspect that keeps us grounded as vessels of mercy is our growing in knowledge of God. This is something very crucial because if our knowledge of God is not in the right place, um, we might even have problems with God himself. The Bible says that my people perish because of lack of knowledge. But Paul concludes chapter 9 by saying that, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So this is how you know who, who, who was called before time or who was not called. What do they do with Christ? You know, you can talk to your friends about good principles, good ideas, um, about Christian values, you know, about nice things that are culturally acceptable or even unacceptable. But the real test is what do they do with Christ? When you present the person and the work of Christ and the investment of the Godhead in him that this was image of Christ, what, what everyone in your life does with that message indicates to you their state in the choosing of God. 
and your own response, like Paul will do in chapter 10, when we look at it next week, it's like we said, to cry unto God for them, to cry unto God for them, and to listen to the heart of God <clears throat> for what he has to say. Finally, 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, it says, and the seven, verse 24 and 25, it says, and the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. <clears throat> repentance is a gift that only God can grant. It's a gift that only God can grant. And if we realize that we are vessels of mercy, it, it's supposed to keep us in a place of humility. It's not supposed to lead us to the mindset that we can abuse the grace of God, but it's supposed to help us remain contrite and humble in spirit so that that mercy can pour out. And even tonight as we pray, I just want you to, I just want you to first of all, lift up your heart in thanksgiving to God for that mercy that is poured out on you. And as you do that, to cast your mind on those things, those mountains that stand before you and remind yourself and just say to God that you are a vessel of mercy. If you know that you're a vessel of mercy, it means in every situation you can, you can call upon the mercy just like Samson. You can call upon the mercy that, that, that chose you before time began. And that same mercy can come into that situation so that what was supposed to be for your disadvantage can be for your advantage. So we're going to pray now um, as we close.